We continue with the We Are For series, or We Are For Family. And there's a little twist this week because we're talking about how we are for people who are far from God, who have decided to either reject God or not even engage in a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, Christ was for those people, and as followers and believers of Jesus, we should do what Jesus did, and thus, we should be for those people, even though they might reject the church, even though they might reject our beliefs. And so, Pastor Todd is taking the reins this week, and he shares the message from a familiar story, Zacchaeus, found in the Gospel of Luke. So, enjoy and be blessed. Well, if you've been here for very long at all, you've heard me talk about my grandparents who raised me in my really most formable years of life. But by the time I was 14 years old, I went to live with my dad prior to starting the ninth grade. My dad was a pipe fitter and welder at the Kelly Springfield Tire Company in Tyler. He comes out of the baby boomer generation and hard work was instilled in him at a very young age. The legend goes that he started his first business at 14 years old, repairing televisions, radios, and washing machines. Have no fear, I did not get his IQ, but neither here nor there, he was a hard worker. He wasn't scared of work. So when he worked at Killy, he worked all the overtime and double shifts he could get his hands on. And as a young teenager, his schedule worked pretty well for me because I was basically on my own. When I was home, my dad was at the factory. When my dad was home, and that was just usually long enough to sleep, I was at school, or as he would tell you, running up and down the road. I'm sure you could guess the direction a teenager would go with so little supervision. From the time I was 14 to the time I was 25 years old, I was as far from God as you can ever imagine. God just did not fit into my life's timetable. I did go to church one time as a teenager, but that was to my best friend's funeral who had been killed in a car accident. I only went to church at the Marine Corps in boot camp, and that's only because it wasn't an option. You picked Protestant or Catholic, and you just went. After leaving the Marines, God began to work on my heart, sort of chasing after me. And finally, I gave in, and I decided to go to church. But I have to tell you this morning that it was scary. It was scary to walk into the doors of a church alone knowing I hadn't really been into church in over 10 years. Would the roof fall in like everyone says it will? Would people be rude to me? Would I be asked to leave? Would I just be pushed to the margins of all the cliques that exist inside the church? But soon all these fears and, and questions were kind of pushed aside because of a couple of men who said yes to a young guy who had said no to God for a very long time. I was pulled into the men's ministry and into a Sunday school class and on and on and on. You see, one of the biggest challenges we face as a church reaching people who are far from God is helping them overcome the challenges of their own context. How do you do that? We do that by emulating Jesus and saying yes to them while they may still be saying no to us. 
You understand that many people say no to God or no to the church out of fear. Some people say no to God or no to the church because they've had a, a bad experience sometime in their life. Some people say no to God or no to the church because their lives have been ordered in such a way that God just gets put on the back burner of life. But what should our response be? Should we just write them off and, and hope they figure it out? Or should we step out of our own comfort zone and show them that we are different? That we don't really care about their past. We really only care about their future. You know, that's exactly what Jesus did. Let me show you. I invite you to take out your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. As you're finding the gospel of Luke, I want to tell you what's happening in Jesus's ministry before we get into our story. Jesus and his disciples had been ministering in the northern region of Israel up around the city of Capernaum and Jesus decides it was time for them to head to Jerusalem in order to get there before the Passover festival begins. And the Bible teaches us in Luke 18, 11, that Jesus and the disciples began to travel south between Samaria and Galilee. Most likely, they would have traveled the low road following along the Jordan River in order to avoid the elevation changes around Mount Gerizim. Now, the Jordan River flows 88 miles south from the Sea of Galilee, and it dumps into the Dead Sea. But Jesus and his disciples don't have to go quite that far because about 20 miles north of the Dead Sea is a town called Jericho. And there they will break off the path and they'll begin heading towards Jerusalem. Now here's where we're gonna pick up our story in Luke chapter 19. We're gonna begin with just verse one. The Bible says he entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, real quick, I just want to tell you a little bit about this city of Jericho because I had the privilege of being there with some of you here in the audience today several years ago. Jericho is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And that doesn't really sound that far, but I want to show you why Jesus was okay with taking a break in the city before finishing the last leg of their journey. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. So that makes a 3,100 foot elevation change in 15 miles, or a 207 foot elevation change every mile. So Jesus and his disciples would have to do some serious climbing on this last part of their journey. Now, as I told you, Jericho sits along the Jordan River in these lowlands, you, you see it here, uh, it has become sort of an oasis in the desert. I mean, you're thinking, okay, this is the Middle East, this is Israel. Why is it so green there? Because of the Jordan River, but also because there are these natural springs that occur around Jericho, it makes it a great place for farming and commerce. This means that Jericho is a booming region. It's sort of like the Silicon Valley of its day. The weather here is perfect. It doesn't get real cold. It doesn't get real hot. It's an attractive place for people to live, sort of like Florida without the hurricanes. 
But what does all this really matter? It matters because of the massive amount of commerce, the massive amount of trade, and the massive amount of people that lived in Jericho. It made the city a central hub for government taxes. Now look at verse 2. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So here Luke points out that Zacchaeus is not just a, an ordinary tax collector like we would assume Matthew was, but instead he's a chief tax collector. Now how many chief tax collectors have you read about in the Bible? Anyone? None. This is the only reference you will find to a chief tax collector. So what does that mean? Well, a better way to understand it, it means that Zacchaeus is basically a tax contractor. He's a tax contractor for the Roman government. In other words, he has many tax collectors that work for him, people like Matthew. So I want to take a moment. I want to tell you how this works. At the beginning of the year, Zacchaeus would go to Herod or whoever's in charge, and he would ask them, what is the amount of taxes they expected to collect for the people of this region? Herod may come back and say, well, I need a million dollars from all the people in the region of Jericho. And Zacchaeus says, okay, let me write out a check for you. Here's your million dollars. Now I will go and I will collect the taxes back from the people with just a little bit on top to cover my expenses. You see where this is going, don't you? Zacchaeus would also have the backing of the Roman government while he went and collected the taxes. So you are not going to be in the position to say, sorry, I'm not giving you any money because you would have some Roman soldiers showing up at your door. So Zacchaeus then goes and hires maybe 50 men and they go out and collect the money however they see fit. Now, I want to tell you this morning, that there is no way that these men would collect more taxes than they should for a profit. And there is no way that Zacchaeus would ever gouge these people on what is owed. They only did this as a service to Rome and out of the kindness of their heart. No, not at all. They did that very thing and people hated tax collectors because of it. And the chief tax collector, he would have been like the devil incarnate. I mean, let's think about it for a second. The Jews have this rule book. It's called the Mishnah. There's a statute in the Mishnah that, state, that states, you can lie to a tax collector if you believe he is a cheat. Now you understand why Luke adds the emphasis at the end of the verse when he said, and he was rich. You see it? All the first century churches would have known why Zacchaeus was rich and where his wealth came from. Verse 3. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. Now, let, let me just address that real quick. Zacchaeus had no idea that Jesus was coming to town. All he's seen is the crowd starts gathering. People are lying the street. He's thinking, what is going on here? And he's trying to see what is happening. Again, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. Verse 4. 
Now, if you've been in church very long at all, you've heard the story of Zacchaeus. If you've been in church since you were a child, you probably know the tune. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I will spare you the pain of the rest. (laughs) But here's the problem with our children's song. Zacchaeus may not have been a wee little man. He may not have been small in stature. The Greek writing would have stated this way, for he, talking about Zacchaeus, was small in Halikia. Now here's what's interesting. This word Halikia can mean three things, age, height, or social status. Well, I doubt Zacchaeus was small in age, right? He was a chief tax collector. So he wouldn't have been a young man. There's no way he could have done that job. He'd have probably been middle-aged or, or older. We have no real way to know if he was small in height or not. But what we do know is that he would have lacked social status because he was hated among the people. I imagine that Zacchaeus couldn't see over the crowd because everyone was pushing him to the back. You get it? I mean, can you imagine? Here's this parade going on and and here comes Zacchaeus, this man that everyone hates and somebody's like, get away from me. You're not getting in front of me. You get back there. My theory of his lack of social status is confirmed even more in verse four. Look at it. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, talking about Jesus, for he, Jesus, was about to pass through that way. Now there are two things in the first century that men did not do. Number one was to run in public. Number two, it was climb trees. These actions were only for children. No one with any sort of self-respect would have been seen running, much less climbing a tree. Let's just think about the practicality of it alone. These men wore these tunics, much like the robe that I'm wearing today. You ladies know where I'm going with this. Do you think he's going to climb a tree? He wasn't wearing jeans and boots like I am, if you get my drift. But Zacchaeus, he doesn't care because people considered him less than desirable to begin with. So what did he care what people thought about him climbing a tree? And these are his people. I mean, he's a Jew, and I'll show you how I know this later. But can you imagine how this affected his life? I'm sure he wasn't welcomed in the marketplace. I'm sure he wasn't welcomed out in the fields. We know from this passage of scripture, he wasn't welcomed in this crowd. But I bet you anything, he wasn't welcomed in the synagogue. I would imagine that he, it's been too long since he'd ever graced the doors of the church. He had already gave up on God and gave up on church. Verses five and six. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, 
for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Zacchaeus had spent his adult life separated from God, but there was something working on him. He knew something had to change in his life. Something wasn't quite right, but he couldn't put his finger on it. But now when he, he meets Jesus, he, he realizes what it is that he's been seeking. He was needing to be reconciled or restored back to God. So the Bible says that he received Christ gladly or with joy. Oh, I hope that you can say the same thing, that you have done that as well. Verse 7. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, the emphasis here on sinner really gets lost in the English translation. What Luke is saying is that Zacchaeus was a blatant sinner who falls far short of what God expects of us or what God approves us. But remember, these people that are always going around grumbling, they're comparing other people to themselves as if they had already had the approval of God. But why are they grumbling? Because it was a tradition if someone of great importance comes to your city like a rabbi, that they would go and sit and eat with the city elders and dignitaries. They certainly didn't go and eat with a chief tax collector. Their grumbling was out of jealousy. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. So I love this, this portion of the story. You have to kind of picture it in your head. It says that... Uh, Jesus said, come down, we've got to go to your house. So they had already started walking on the path. They're walking along, and in Todd's version of the Bible, I can see Jesus walking about three or four paces behind Zacchaeus, probably a grin on his face because Zacchaeus is going, oh boy, what is going on here? I mean, this is Jesus. He's coming to my house, and who am I? All these people hate me. So I'm sure he's a little nervous, and he's a little scared, and probably in the, the, the silence of him walking so fast, the Bible says he stops. He turns around to Jesus, and he says, you know, if, if I've done anything wrong, <laughs> let's just get this straight right now. If I've done anything wrong, I guess the guilty dog does bark first, huh? But there's more to his comment than just a simple confession or, or proclamation. First, Zacchaeus says, if I've defrauded anyone, I will give them back four times the amount. You know, I said I'd show you how I knew Zac Zacchaeus was a Jew. This is it right here. Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, teaches if a Jew steals a person's sheep, the law calls for them to pay back four times the cost of the sheep that they had stolen. Also in Leviticus chapter 6, it says if you take something from someone, restitution should be five times the amount of what you stole. So Zacchaeus may have been out of church for a very long time, but he knew that the law of Moses called for an extravagant payback. 
Also, did you hear Zacchaeus promising to give half of his possessions back to the poor? I mean, how rich was this guy? Uh, How many of you today will go and give half of everything you own to the poor? I mean, he must have had so much money, even if he gave his half of his possessions to the poor, he would have had plenty to live on for the rest of his life. He couldn't have been too worried about it, but how rich was he? Well, let's just think about it by the way of how much taxes he had to collect. If you're a male Jew and you're 20 years old or older, you first had to pay a temple tax, then you had to give 10% of your crops to support the priests and the Levites. That is part of the Jewish law that has nothing to do with Rome, but you got to think money and expenses wise, right? So here you're already paying temple tax and you're paying 10% of your crops. Then to Rome, a resident had to pay taxes on your crops, taxes on your stuff, anything you sold, and for everyone in your family. Historians and scholars estimate that these first century Jews had to pay somewhere between 50 and 80% of taxes on their income. And Zacchaeus is skimming off the top of all of it. But now something has changed. Look in verse 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. So this line, son of Abraham, once meant that you were a covenantal descendant of the father of the Hebrew people, Abraham. But really by the time of Jesus, certainly by the time of Paul, it came to mean something different because it was including both Jews and Gentiles. So what Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus is, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house because you are exhibiting the exact same kind of faith as our father Abraham exhibited. And at that moment, Zacchaeus has been justified. He's been reconciled to God because of his belief in Christ. But not only that, because he made a vow to give back all this money to the people he stole it from, plus interest, he would have been restored to his rightful place in the community as well. What do I mean by that? Did you know the name Zacchaeus in Hebrew is really Zakai. And the name Zakai means innocent or righteous. This is who Zacchaeus was called to be. From birth, he was called to be innocent and righteous. And now he's living into his calling. Jesus' action not only reconnected Zacchaeus to God, but now it's activated him as a kingdom builder. You see it? When Jesus finally comes into your life, you become who you were designed to be, a restored, reconciled child of God created for righteousness to proclaim the grace of God in the world. And if Christ could say yes to Zacchaeus, couldn't we do the same thing? June 23rd, 2018, 12 kids enter a a cave with their coach on the border of Thailand. You probably remember the story. Efforts to save the soccer team were hampered because of the rising waters and the coming of the monsoon rains. People from all over the world pitched in both equipment and volunteers. There were 10,000 people 
100 divers, 2,000 military personnel, and 100 government agencies all working to free these kids. But it wasn't until July the 10th when the last child was pulled from the mouth of that cave. Friends, that is such the picture that Jesus Christ goes to to rescue each one of us from our sin. Do you see it in the Zacchaeus story? Jesus went about the countryside reclaiming a world that was broken by sin through seeking and saving the lost by saying yes to those that had said no to him. Shouldn't we be about the same business, church? I think so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for your holy word. We give you thanks for the life of Zacchaeus. Lord, we give you thanks that he was not so far off that he wasn't beyond recovering because no one is. He teaches us, Lord, that you're there waiting for us to return. So we give you thanks for your grace and your mercy. We give you thanks for your word. Father, as we go from this place, let us be a people who are willing to say yes to those that continually reject you and say no to you, to offer grace and mercy to them. Because one day, as the Spirit works in their heart, they'll return and we'll be there for them. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this message. And if you did, I invite you to support our ministry by giving online at jwumc.org give. Also would invite you to find a church to attend on a regular basis or join us at John Wesley on Sunday mornings at 8.15, 9 o'clock, and 11.15. God bless and have a great week.